Hi, and welcome to Understanding Dysphagia Podcast, a 10-part series with Dysphagia Outreach Project. I'm your host, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, regularly the host of First Bite, Fed, Fun, Functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. In honor of Dysphagia Awareness Month, the Dysphagia Outreach Project has pooled some of their amazing leaders together to share their knowledge with the world in hopes of raising awareness about dysphagia across the life continuum, as well as raising awareness regarding the dynamic volunteer work that DOP does every day for individuals of all ages with dysphagia. And this episode is dedicated to stroke. So without further ado, please allow me to introduce today's guest. Also, I totally love this woman, so I'm so happy we get to do this one. Today, we Sarah Brashears. She's an SLP in her sixth year of practice working in an acute hospital setting, as well as providing teletherapy for children with exceptional learning abilities as a travel SLP in Destin, Florida. She is the creative powerhouse behind Short and Sweet Speech and the Instagram manager for Dysphagia Outreach Project. She leads a team of five women who work to create content that is engaging, informative, and reaches those who would benefit from DOP's mission. Sarah is a self-proclaimed CEU addict and has earned two ASHA ACE awards in as many years. Sarah found her love for dysphagia in grad school during the clinical rotation working with head and neck cancer patients. She sees the impact that participation in mealtime and social events that all seem to involve food and drink can have on one's quality of life. Helping her patients get that piece of normal, Getting that back, that's her biggest motivation. When she's not working or taking CEUs, she's mommying two Frenchies, Betty White and Jack Black, who have their own Instagram account, and I highly recommend that one. Or she's bringing a little bit of optimism and positivity to the SLP Insta community. She most recently founded Social Moguls, a social media management agency to serve other healthcare providers looking to diversify their resume and increase their independence. P.S. I am a huge fan of Social Moguls, so go check her out in the land of Instagram. And y'all, Sarah is an avid traveler, scuba diver, and oral care advocate, and the brains behind that fabulous sticker, Girl Brush Their Teeth, which I may or may not have bookmark on my laptop and on the dry erase board in my office. I need to get one for the boys' bathroom and just remind them every day. But yay, Sarah, here! (laughs) That is like the best intro I think I've ever had. (laughs) Yes, but I'm serious. We just, I I need to get a sticker to remind the boys to brush their teeth every morning and put the toilet seat down. Boy mom problems. <laughs> I can I can make you one of those. Brush your teeth, put the toilet seat down, oral care safe lives. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> also not falling in the pot first thing in the morning, because I mean the one will forget to put it up and the other one will sit down and then they'll like fall in the oh, toilet. Yeah. Awkward splash, followed by a scream, followed by the everybody's gotta get run through the shower and we're now late for school. So, you know. <laughs> That didn't happen this week. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay, so you do all the things and you're everywhere and you are a petite powerhouse of muchness and I adore you. But how in the world did you 
what made you want to be a speech pathologist? And then how did you get involved with DOP? Let's start there. I always say that speech pathology found me because um, (laughs) I actually enrolled into the intro to communication sciences and disorders, which is like the university speak for speech language pathology. I enrolled into that class by accident. I thought that whenever it said communication disorders, it was going to be like a little psych, a little sociology. And now I'm like, that makes no sense at all. But (laughs) I (laughs) showed up to class on the first day and I listened to everyone go around the room and do the typical, hi, my name's Sarah and I'm in this class because blah, blah, blah. And everyone was talking about why they wanted to be a speech pathologist because we're in the intro class, which makes sense. And um, I listened to that and everything that they said resonated with me. You know, I wanted to be a teacher, but I want to do something a little bit different. Or I really wanted to be a nurse, but I can't handle needles. And I was like, yep, same, me too. Uh, or, you know, yeah. some people were in the class because they had received services from a speech pathologist or their grandpa or, you know, someone they've seen our work firsthand. And so I had been kind of praying and trying to figure out what I was going to be whenever I grew up because it was January of my senior year of college. And that's a good time to figure that out. <laughs> and so my mom just said, you know, don't don't put a question mark where God has put a period. And we didn't. We changed my plans to graduate. I did another year of undergrad to get prereqs. And then I went on to grad school. So it kind of found its way to me. (laughs) That's amazing. And that is totally a God moment. Bear Mm -hmm. and I were talking about that this morning at breakfast over donuts and how every Mm -hmm. once in a while flips you an extra donut that you didn't order. And that's a God wink moment. Like surprise. Mm -hmm. I like your mom's statement. She was a wise one for sure. Flash forward because you and I will both get super emotional and then my Irish eyes will start honest. But um, how did you get into DOP? Back in October, a couple of the directors had approached me and we had just connected through Instagram and they had seen my short and sweet speech page and kind of my um, tone and like my, the voice of that brand. And Mm -hmm. they said, you know, we love your positivity and your optimism and dysphagia is something that can be really depressing. And so we would love to have you come on board. And like, at first I was just coming on to help with some content creation and some writing and, bringing some optimism (laughs) to the page. And then in January, I actually stepped into the role of Instagram manager. And I was so excited because I love Instagram. I love the way that you can connect with people. I mean, this conversation right now, this podcast that we're recording wouldn't have happened without Instagram if you and I hadn't connected through there. This wouldn't have happened if I hadn't called you or you called me first (laughs) volunteer with DOP. And I was like, yo, I don't, I don't have a special gift. All I do is talk. And then in the middle of the night, I was like, no, no, I can't do this. God, I can't do this. God. And then he was like, yes, yes, you can. And then 
I had to sit on my laurels and not call you at like four o'clock in the morning when I actually was like, we could do a mini series. (laughs) (laughs) What time did I text you at like 530? I don't think I waited that long. (laughs) I don't remember because I was still sleeping. I mean, it's amazing. Like I used to kind of poo-poo is what I call it. Just like blow off and kind of like undervalue what social media could be. And it has changed so many lives. I mean, just through DOP being more visible and more people knowing about it to either support Mm -hmm. it or get the resources that they need. And it was super important to me whenever I came on board that I wanted to make sure that we weren't just another account sharing the research because I think that's wonderful. And it's amazing that we have that right there on our Instagram, but I wanted to do something different that would share the research in a way that was accessible and understandable for the patient, for their family members, for their caretakers, because I've also been on that side of the coin. Mm -hmm. I have a great nephew that he just turned two, but he was born with a laryngeal cleft and a cleft lip. Mm -hmm. And the lip didn't really affect him very much as far as feeding. But having a cleft in the back of your larynx will sure cause you to aspirate. And so, um, you know, watching my sister and then my nephew and his wife, who are Stetson's parents, watching them go through the process of figuring out what the heck is going on with their kid. Why are we having these issues? What do we do in the meantime? And how do we permanently fix it? And just all of the, one, the misinformation that they were getting. And then just them trying to understand this lingo that's a totally different language than what anyone besides an SLP speaks on a normal day. Watching them try and figure all of that out, I was like, we we need to be a resource for them because there's so many other families out there going through the same thing. And so that has been a really huge motivator for me in kind of shaping the voice of Instagram and just everything that we do there. And that's, you know, I wanted this podcast to be the same way. I wanted it to be something that anyone can listen to and get something from. Because I think that, you know, there's so much information available for SLPs, but not as much geared towards the families. Yes. Single episodes kind of, it's neat how it segues between like an intro episode to nitty gritty back to the heart of the topic Mm -hmm. and it's been beautiful to see everybody's personal heart shine through and you can feel it Mm -hmm. you can why they're serving the population that they have been called to serve so needless to say folks we love what we would do or we wouldn't be here so we hope this helps so okay So we're going to talk about a heavy topic today because it is, because stroke is a heavy topic. I preface this with, 
once upon a time, I worked with adults who had had CVAs. And now I work with tiny little ones that have had intrauterine CVAs, perinatal stroke. But there is one book that I would highly recommend if you're listening, go check it out. It's called My Stroke of Insight. It was written by a scientist who actually dissected brains and studied them. And then she ended up having a stroke. And I would highly, highly recommend her book because it gives a firsthand personal narrative experience and it is just simply profound. I read that. I made that mistake of reading that in grad school. Uh, no, not the mistake. No, it was a mistake because I was working with the patient who had had a massive stroke. So like I basically cried for three days straight while I was reading the book. But then, mm-hmm. the oh, my God, it was. Wow. It's a great book. So check mm-hmm. that book. Okay. So take me from the top, lady. There's my disclaimer. I don't know anything about adults anymore. So <laughs> Uh, so when I asked the question, Sarah, like I legit, it's been like a minute. So help. Um, can you break it for us? What happens to the brain when someone has a stroke? There are a few different scenarios, different types of strokes that you can have, but there's two main categories of stroke. One is where there's a blockage and the blood can't get to all parts of the brain. And this blockage can come from different areas, different things. But overall, that's what we want to remember about that one is there's a blockage that is not allowing blood to get to all of the brain. And then there's another type where the blood is leaking or they say bleeding, but I'm like, of course, blood is bleeding, <laughs> but it's <laughs> leaking. <laughs> it's leaking somewhere to where there's bleeding in the brain. And so one is a blockage and one is a bleed. And so those are your two main things. But why do we care so much about blood flow is because our blood is what carries our oxygen to all parts of our body. And whenever something doesn't have oxygen, it begins to die. So those tissues start to die. And whenever that's happening, whenever you have a blockage or bleed, that's reducing your blood flow for every minute you lose two million neurons oh my god yeah it comes out to 14 billion synapses seven and a half miles of myelinated fibers and they project that it reduces your life by three weeks even if you know you survive and everything is great afterwards it does have an impact on your overall lifespan. So that's why you'll hear the saying time is brain because we have so many neurons and they're dying so quickly without oxygen. So that's why there's such a huge need to seek medical care as quickly as possible because depending on the type of stroke that you're having, whether it's a blockage or a bleed, and they look at other factors that have gone on recently in your life as well. But if you can get to the hospital within the first few hours, don't wait around. You need to go as soon as you're seeing symptoms. But if you can get there within the first couple of hours of the that onset of symptoms, then they have medication that they can give you to either break up the clot or the blockage 
or if you have been on a certain type of medication that increases your risk of bleeding, that can reverse the effects of that medication and slow down the bleed. There's also an option if you have, they call it a large vessel occlusion. It's basically just like a really big blockage in a really big vessel. Then they can go in and actually they go through your blood vessels and go up and get that blockage and remove it. And the blood flow is immediately restored. So, so important that you get there as soon as you notice any kind of symptoms because time is great. Yes. I tie this back into often when you're doing your patient intake and when you are doing your patient intake information, make sure you look at their full medical records. I mean, if they have high cholesterol, if they have diabetes, smoking, drinking, we have to give a thorough PMH, a past medical history. We have to be thorough in our details because the likelihood of having a secondary stroke if you've had the first is profound. And you need to be able to recognize those signs and symptoms. What is it? Fast face, arms, speech, time. Is that the T? Mm-hmm. Huh? So it's yep. they've added be fast. So balance, eyes, face, arm, speech, time to call 911. Perfect. Yes. I haven't worked with adults since Bear was nine months old. So you're talking six years. So it's been six years since I've worked with an adult patient. And we had, he was a bilingual preacher that I worked with. And after his English was his native language and he learned Spanish, but I will remember watching him. We were working our way through the Lark box. I love the Lark box, by the way, (laughs) working through the Lark box. And we were on hammer and he was trying to tell me how they, they lived in Central America on different, different countries in Central America, I should specify, like for basically 30 years as missionaries. And he's telling me about how he would build homes and do repair work. And I noticed he was slipping from English to Spanish, which he didn't normally do while he was going through the paraphasias. And I was like, it's not right. And so I called the physical therapist in and she goes, Michelle, you're, you're right. Something's not right. And I was like, I think we need to get into the ER. I'm concerned he might be having an extension or a secondary bleed. And we caught him in time. He had a massive clot and it was subtle. Y'all, the signs and symptoms may be subtle, but you have to know that B fast. I didn't know that B had been added to fast. I'm so glad that you said that because mm-hmm. in retro, he was a little like off, like mobility wise that day. So that's why we continue education. Also, it's hard when your heart gets wrapped with a patient or a mm-hmm. loved one. And you may not, I, that's a, mm-hmm, I heard that I felt that in my soul lady. <laughs> you, you, but I, I mean, it is. And so, yes. Mm-hmm. So, Yes. Okay. Now, coolest stroke experience of my professional career was when I was a CF and I had an individual who'd had a brainstem CVA and it looked completely different than the rest of any other experience I have ever had. And Mm -hmm. it affected their trigeminal and facial nerve. 
And she laughed and said she looked like she had Botox permanently across her forehead because she couldn't raise her eyebrows. And I mean, the woman had the greatest sense of humor ever. And she goes, hmm, I don't need to pay for that anymore. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> Love that optimism. <laughs> I know. I'm like, and I'm like, you know, there I am, five years old, and I'm like, why did you pay for Botox in in the first place? And here I am at 38, and I'm like, ooh, when is my appointment? I think it's in two weeks. <laughs> so, <laughs> also, I'm petrified. I'm going for Botox for the first time. So, y'all, if my forehead doesn't move for the next six months, we'll know why. But um, <laughs> overshare. Um, but my thought was. It impacted her swallow incredibly different than like a typical like left hemisphere CVA. Like mm-hmm. our approach for her was very unique. So how does how does a stroke impact and result in dysphagia? You know, you're talking about different areas that you can have a stroke in. Whenever we talk about an area that you have a stroke in, that just means the area that was without blood flow. Mm-hmm. And while brain mapping is not always an exact science, and there's always going to be a patient that strays from what we think is typical, we have a good idea of which parts of the brain are responsible for which functions in the body. So in most people, the left side controls a good portion of the right side of the body, the functions that happen over there, and vice versa. Vision is in the back of the brain, your higher cognitive functions problem solving and paying attention to multiple things at once. Those are going to be in the front. Speech and language are usually on the left side. And whenever we have someone who has a stroke on the right side, a lot of times you'll notice that they have less awareness of their impairments. Mm -hmm. So we've got some idea of what parts of the brain control what parts of the body. And so whenever there's a loss of blood flow to one of those parts that that affects swallowing, then you're going to see an impairment in swallowing. And like you said, a lot of times that is in the brainstem because that's such a huge part of controlling swallowing. Whenever you know you have your brain, we'll say your control unit, and part of it mm-hmm. has been without blood flow, so those those neurons have died, then it's harder to be the control unit whenever you're not able to use the whole I keep saying control unit but that's like you don't you don't have the full remote control so you can't push all of the buttons to do all the things that you normally do well use that as an analogy all I can see is that Adam Sandler movie where he has the remote and he like skips over the (laughs) his wife and like that's not okay but that's where Anyway, y'all, I'm the comedic punch <laughs> to the episode today to alleviate the heavy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, yeah. um, you know, the beautiful thing is that the brain is so capable of so much more than I believe that we fully understand, even with what we know in medicine today. You hear about these stories of people that have such massive strokes or massive TBIs and looking at that initial MRI, you're like not very hopeful. And then you see them a few months later and they're not, I won't say back to their normal selves because I don't think, you know, I think it's a different kind of normal, but further, 
improved than what you would ever guess that they would be. It's amazing how we can heal. Mm -hmm. Also, y'all, working with a patient who's had a CVA, regardless of age, I mean, down to our tiniest little ones Mm -hmm. who, I mean, especially our our micro preemies or our patients that have had alcohol, ETOH exposure or drug exposure, especially illicit um, narcotics. Our little ones tend to have intraventricular hemorrhages, so the ventricles of the brain tend to bleed. And that's severe and profound, but regardless of age, micropremies to our adults do not practice in a silo. Do not just be alone. You have to engage core. You have to engage gross motor to fine motor across their bodies in order to get them safe and for even attempting PO trials. And that's not just us. That is OT and PT. So we're allied health for a reason. We have allies. Let's work as allies. So. No, I love that. I totally agree. That was, you know, something that we would do working with adults, not even with babies, but you go in and do co-treats because if you can help them in multiple areas at once, you're going to see greater gains. Yes. What are the approaches now that say somebody has a stroke? Let's go with left hemisphere, CVA, embolotic. There it is. Elephants. That's how I remember the clotting stroke, y'all, was because embolotic is where you have a clot that migrates from somewhere in your body like elephants move to find a new watering hole. That's how I remember it. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. But, but it's stuck, right? Like it works. And then there's, there's, yeah, elephants move. So like, let's say somebody had an embolotic stroke and now they have a clot that maybe started in like, I don't know, their left leg and moved its way up, which is why I watched the cholesterol levels of food consumption often because I was petrified of this and still am, but squirrel one, but let's say they have a left hemisphere CVA because of this. Okay. Let's make it hypothetically more profound. So they have right hemisphere paralysis or severe paresis. Paresis is weakness. Paralysis is immobility. So let's let's say it's 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 a grandiose occlusion. What would you do to treat? What do we do now? Well, so let's start from the very beginning. So if someone's at home and they're noticing that the right side of their body is numb, feeling, not working like it should. They aren't able to walk or maybe maybe it's just their face because it doesn't have to be all of the symptoms. My dad actually had a stroke. It's been almost two years ago. And he was sitting at home and he noticed he tried to pick up the remote and his, his arm was working, but he couldn't get his hand to work. And then he started feeling his face was feeling funny. And then he tried to move his leg and he noticed that, and it was kind of this, what I would imagine would feel like a very rapid (laughs) progression. But because I had scared him enough with (laughs) talking about cases at work, he knew immediately that he needed to call and get help. And so 
living in rural Oklahoma, he got to take an ambulance ride to a football field uh, like 20 minutes away where the helicopter picked him up and brought him to the hospital where I worked. And then he had about 45 minutes left of the window to be able to get that clot busting medication. It's called TPA. Wow. Yeah. And he has made like a 99% recovery because he was there in time to receive it. But once someone comes into the hospital with stroke-like symptoms, they will do a CT, which shows them whether you're bleeding or not, whether you have a bleed, because if you do have a bleed, then they're going to treat it totally differently than they will if it appears that you have a blockage. And so once that is determined, whether you have a bleed or not, then they will a lot of times go ahead with an MRI, but they'll be able to go ahead and start that clot busting medication if you meet all of the qualifications for that, because there are certain things, you know, if you've just had a recent surgery and we give you a really powerful blood thinner, which is what that is basically, um, that would not be good. So no. <laughs> they make sure that no. you don't have any. Yeah. <laughs> make sure that I'm just like, any... yeah. yeah, that and hemophilia. I could see where that would not be. Like, yeah. yeah. Huh? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> But um, they make sure that, you know, you're a candidate and then they'll go ahead and start it because remember, time is brain. And so they'll go ahead and start that medication and then get you into MRI and get a better look at what exactly is going on. And so from there, you know, if you're in a certified stroke center, that's the hospital that I worked at in Tulsa and both of them that I PR in for down here. It's typical that you will see PT, OT, and speech for evaluations within the first 24 hours that you're there. And then from there, we just look at, you know, what impairments are we seeing? Is there, what is affecting your function? So maybe that looks like you are having trouble finding your words. Maybe it looks like you're having trouble swallowing. For some people, it's just gross motor. They don't really have a lot of, impairments with cognitive things or language items or swallowing. So then, you know, it's not uncommon for someone to be seeing PTOT and not speech, or maybe it's just language, cognition, swallowing that's giving you trouble. Then we would see them. It just, each patient is so different. It just kind of depends on what symptoms they're presenting with, what things they're having difficulty with. And we just dive right in while you're still in the hospital and get to work because time is brain. And (laughs) the, you know, the same urgency that we feel with you getting to the hospital, you know, we want to start therapy as early as we can because research shows that that is going to give you the best long-term outcomes. Yes. So my CF was working at a rural hospital and it was the first time they'd ever had a full-time SLP. So like my CF suit came in to one, sell me Mary Kay and to sign off on my documents once every three months. And so like girl bought a lot of Mary Kay back in the day. 
<laughs> yeah, whatever. Um, it's good learning experience. But like my real mentors were the chief hospitalist who really did look like Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. And it was just really funny because the first time I met him, I was like, but he's the lead doctor. You <laughs> look like Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. But um, the man was brilliant. But I remember he went above and beyond to sit down with me to pour over charts to help me really understand what I was looking at on an MRI and to talk to me about medication administration and how if a patient's NPO or if they're on like an altered diet, how that can drastically change administration of medication and why it was important that we clearly understood did the pills need to be crushed or could they take the pills whole because that changed their metabolic absorption times and how Mm -hmm. we but I remember going through that also expressing my concern to him that the nurses tell everyone to do a chin tuck when they swallow for my patients that have had a unilateral CBA, that's not always right. Mm-hmm. So well, can you explain the why? <laughs> Thank you. Oh my God. Yes. Okay. Explain yeah. the why. <laughs> well, so depending on where in your brain you have had a stroke affects what muscles and nerves, you know, what parts of your body are impaired and not getting that full connection i've heard the analogy of a lamp so your brain is the electricity you have a nerve that is the cord and then the muscle is the bulb and if you're not making that full circuit if it's not all connected then that muscle is not going to be functioning in the same way that it normally would and so depending on where in the brain that has happened that can determine, you know, maybe some of the muscles on one side of your throat are not working like they should to help you swallow. And so the chin tuck is something that I have seen really help patients, but I've also seen patients that it actually made it worse. It made them aspirate more. So if anyone's listening and doesn't know what aspirate is, that is whenever you swallow and it goes down the wrong pipe, basically. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Chris choked on water yesterday morning and he goes, it went into my trachea, mom. It did not come into <laughs> That was like, that's oh my normal gosh. for an eight-year-old. Sorry. Love that boy. <laughs> oh, God, that's great. Okay, continue. Sorry. That's hilarious. Um, but so the chin tuck, I'm not sure when or why it became so widely recommended by a lot of times people who are not as specialized in swallowing as a speech pathologist, but it's something that I run into fairly regularly that people say, oh, well, you know, the so-and-so told me just tuck my chin and it'll be fine. And I'm like, well, (laughs) did they scope you to tell you that? Or did they use fluoroscopy to tell you that? Because if they didn't do either of those, you could be making it worse. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's something that, Mm -hmm. you know, I've seen multiple times. You have a patient who 
maybe they're aspirating within liquids whenever you do your modified barium swallow study or your feeds. And so depending on what that looks like, what we're seeing, you might have them try to tuck their chin down to their chest and swallow like that. Because again, depending on what's going on, what muscles, what nerves, what parts of the brain are affected, it may help protect that airway and keep the food and liquid out of it. But it could also make it worse. And it's just something that we do not, no one, no human being has the power to know without using either fluoroscopy or a scope to take a look and see what's actually happening. And as you can tell, it's something that I'm a little bit passionate about because (laughs) it just, we have to know. Yeah. And I think everyone who has ever made that recommendation truly means well, but it's just one of those outdated beliefs that we as a profession have to be vocal about ending because if we don't, no one else will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is amazing to me to see how the evolution of best practice for embracing instrumental evals is still ongoing. Mm-hmm. And I say that because, you know, the facility that I worked at when I started all those years ago, they didn't have instrumental swallow eval capabilities, right? They were stuck with clinical swallow evals. We just didn't have it. It was super rural. So I understand budget constraints, distance, but that's where we have to advocate. And to my knowledge, JCO, the Joint Commission of Health, still comes in. They go through and look at hospital acquired pneumonias and you get points or dings. And when you have hospital acquired pneumonia, especially an aspiration pneumonia for a patient that came in with a stroke or came in with a TIA, but somebody inadvertently meaning well gave them misinformation. And now they have aspirated based upon that misinformation. First and foremost, it's a patient safety issue. And second, the hospital is going to get deemed. So you as the speech pathologist listening, you as the caregiver listening, you as the patient listening, have the ability to say, this is a problem. Now, if, if you've had a stroke, your ability to say that may be through written communication, a communication device, and all sign language, a, a different ways, eye gaze. But we can advocate for that change. And remember, you're the source of change. Dun, dun, dun. As soon as you said that, I my first thought was, and it's yes. our job to advocate yes. for that change. Because... It makes me think of, you know, if you're sitting there and your friend has this raging headache and you have Tylenol in your purse and you you have the ability to help someone, but you're not offering it, then, you know, what are we, what are we doing? Because it may feel like you're helping someone by recommending a chin duck to everyone, but really like that could be making it a whole lot worse and it really can be life or death mm-hmm. for some patients. And, you know, that sounds dramatic, but whenever, like you said, you have a patient that develops pneumonia, some systems aren't ways to recover as well Mm -hmm. from that as others. And it can be a slippery slope. I mean, I remember it was probably 2015 or 16. I was wanting so badly, so, so, so badly 
to get back into the medical world. And um, one of the ways that I was looking at doing that is through travel therapy. And I flew down to Bainbridge, Georgia. It was a tiny, tiny little Wait, town. And what interviewed is it called? The hospital. Bainbridge? Uh, I got to uh-huh. Google that because I haven't even heard of that. But continue. Sorry. but you know I wanted a hospital so bad and I know so many SLPs have felt this you want a hospital job and I was offered one but they did not have the equipment or the setup or the capabilities to use any kind of instrumental assessment for dysphagia and I said I turned it down I said I can't work like that because you're not giving me all the tools that I need Mm -hmm. to do my job. And so I turned it down and you know that I wanted a hospital so bad, but I just know that that is, that is part of our toolkit that everyone should have access to. And I know that that's not the case in all situations and not everyone can turn down a job because of it. But I think that it's our job to continue to make noise, be the squeaky wheel, bring the evidence to light and, you know, make that change happen. I just Googled Bainbridge, Georgia. That is really, really dead. <laughs> <laughs> if you're from Bainbridge. <laughs> yeah. Actually, it's funny because last weekend I went to Tampa for a fees course and driving between Destin and Tampa, I went just like 20 miles south of uh-huh. Bainbridge and somewhere I never thought that I would see or think of again <laughs> after I left. But it's all right. I didn't realize Chattahoochee was like an actual thing aside from that song. Chattahoochee's an actual city really close to Bainbridge. So like, boom. Yay for maps. <laughs> Uh, also if you're from Chattahoochee or Bainbridge please know we say all this in jest huzzah (laughs) disclaimer Uh, okay all right wait all right so we so we go through and and we're doing um uh chin tuck and positioning what other exercises what other therapies or do you commonly go to because there is a quote by Jerry Logerman and I don't know where I saw it Jerry Logerman y'all is the godmother of dysphagia right? Just, oh, to have, I would have loved Mm -hmm. to have been alive to have met her, right? But she said the worst thing she did for our profession was make recommendation for thickening liquids because that became folks' intervention. Paraphrasing her quote here. Mm -hmm. That was never meant to be the intervention. That was just a tool, right? Right. The interventions are what we're actually working with the patient. You can't bill for thickening someone's liquids. Also remember for a lot of those thickeners, especially like the starch based corn starch based ones, the longer they sit, the thicker they get and also contributes to constipation dehydration. And if it goes into the lungs, mm, we have a cell that can move in and out and saliva in and out, but it doesn't do a great job at all moving thickener in and out of your lungs. What are your approaches there, ma'am? I'm not a huge fan of thickening liquids and <laughs> it's not something <laughs> that I, I joke, but I'm also like a thousand percent serious that it will be in my advanced directive that 
I will not have thickened liquids. Gosh, this could be a whole episode of its own. But there's, I'm going to quote this wrong. So the <laughs> the research article that I'm talking about is on my Instagram. If anyone wants to go actually read it. But basically they found that whenever cornstarch is aspirated, it has very detrimental effects. The study that I'm thinking of was done on rabbits because they their lungs are very similar to ours. Zero percent, it was either zero or 12, maybe it was 12% survived the study. And the study was only four days long whenever they were aspirating cornstarch thickened water. And so a lot of people think, you know, thicker is safer. But then in the same study, they had a control group that it was just water and they had, I believe, a hundred percent survival rate. Obviously, you know, you don't want to be pouring water down into your lungs, but if you're going to have anything go into your lungs, that's the best thing it can be. They also looked at xanthan gum thickeners and they didn't have the mortality rate, but they did have injury to like the lung tissues, basically. So I am not a proponent. I will use thickened liquids whenever that is our only option. But we know that there has to be more than just aspiration occurring for it to turn into pneumonia. And a lot of people can functionally aspirate. And everyone aspirates. But there are people who aspirate more often than others that are okay. And their body, like you said, you know, you have those cells that move it out and take care of you. (laughs) But it's much, much, much more difficult to do that, whatever there's thickener in it. Counts for tiny humans too. Regardless of age, counts for tiny humans too. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that was one thing whenever we were going through everything with my great nephew, he had his first modified at three weeks old because I could hear that like something was not (laughs) going the way that it should whenever he was um, nursing. And so as we went through this process, he had a few modifieds and there was some information. And then, you know, we got to a really great doctor who dealt with kiddos like him that had clefts and had swelling issues. And he said, you know, it's okay if he aspirates a little bit, it's not the end of the world. It's okay. And he went until a little after his first birthday before he had the surgery that fixed his laryngeal cleft. And we used thickener for his bottle, but then he was able to have, whenever he got old enough to have water, he was able to have water that was not thickened because if you aspirate that, it's not as big of a deal. And, you know, in a healthy person, your body can, can manage that. So Yes, for little ones, big ones, everyone's. <laughs> Trust but verify. I mean, not that my family worked in Navy intelligence as a small child, and I grew up hearing trust but verify. Um, but trust but verify. <laughs> Go back and read the research articles yourselves, and you will you will understand why we're making those recommendations. Now, for my infant, toddlers, children that have had strokes, I yes get the instrumentals, but for me personally. My therapeutic approach to and strategies for intervention are external pacing, mm-hmm. changing flow rate, positioning, 
but first and foremost, strengthening core. If you build Mm -hmm. a house on sand, it will shift. If you put your house on rocks, it will stand firm. And for little ones that have had a stroke, as they are growing and maturing, we have to remember, I'm going to butcher the technical term, proximal distal development, its core. Infants learn from their belly button, from if you put a dot right at their belly button, we grow out from our core to our head and tips of our toes and from our core out to our fingertips. That's how we develop, which is why tummy time is so key. And there's um, killer research as to, it was in an ASHA SIG 13 article from 2016, 2017, I can't remember when, but what they did was they put the baby, they, they took two control groups. They did baseline swallow studies with some toddlers that had had uh, varying levels of neurologic deficits, right? They put the babies in one group. They did traditional speech therapy only, like pacing, mm-hmm. flow rates of nipples. That's it, right? And these patients were all aspirating thin liquids. And then they did for the second group, engage those strategies, but also added an OTPT. Basically, they put them on the therapy ball. They put them on the therapy balls and they bounce them. They bounce them to the right. They bounce them to the left, like 45 degrees right, 45 degrees left. They put them on their tummies and they push them forward and they pull them back and they're bouncing and they're moving. And what are they doing? They're, the child has to engage their core in order to sit upright, in order to not kind of like off the ball. Basically... To a lay person, it looks like they've put these tiny humans and turned them into bobblehead dolls, right? Like that's the first time I saw an OT do this. I was like, why are you shaking this baby? <laughs> like, what is happening? But what they found was that the participants that were in the group that engaged in OTPT for core strengthening, fun fact, your head and neck are connected to the rest of your body. The extrinsic laryngeal musculature and intrinsic laryngeal musculature also improved. And these patients, their swallows improved on instrumental swallow, on the follow-up instrumentals. And it was profound. And because I can't ask my infant to participate in a mascal, a superglottic, a super superglottic swallow. What are the other ones? Is it shaker? Shakir? Shaker? I never understood that. Yeah. 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 But... I mean, we've got those and I, I don't know the technical term for it, but it's like the orange ball. We, we would have like an orange ball. You put the orange ball under your chin and you swallow over the orange ball to like helps with like hyolaryngeal excursion. I don't know if you still do that, but I did that like. <laughs> um, and those are pieces that we have to, we have to actually do a therapeutic intervention. That's not just thickening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked about, is it a compensatory strategy? Is it something that is helping us, but not really changing long-term what's going on? Or is it something that is rehabilitative and like changing what is going on long-term? Mm-hmm. So if you are playing basketball and you use a step stool to stand on, that's a compensatory strategy. But <laughs> if you go out and you, exercise and you work on maybe like how high you can jump or how far you can shoot the ball. Those are things that are changing your game long-term. 
And so I think it's so easy to just throw thickener at someone and say, okay, well, that works and just leave it. And that was never intended to be a long-term thing. You know, for some people, it's, it's needed longer term than others. But I'm telling you, my advanced directive is going to say <laughs> we don't do thickened liquids. <laughs> and, you know, we owe it to our patients to put in the work and do do the work and teach them how to do the work so that that doesn't have to be a life sentence. I mean, there's so aside from, you know, even if you don't aspirate it, like there's so many other risks that come into play whenever there is thickener involved for a lot of patients. And that's something that I always really try to consider before I recommend anything, any kind of adjustment to their diet. But we have to be doing the the exercise, the workouts to improve. Yes. And again, huge soapbox, regardless of age, we have to be doing the exercises and workouts to improve. Mm -hmm. Exercise and workouts. Yeah. The reason why I don't teach articulation and phonology, Sarah, there's a, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh my gosh. Okay. I think we covered it. Sarah and I can talk and talk and talk and talk over your life. We're going to get it all in. And then there was also a comedy of errors. We have tried to record this episode so many times in one time on the way home, Mr. Dawson calls to say the dishwasher has broken the dishwasher that we placed the last dishwasher that leaked all over to my house. And also humans that eat a lot of food. It was, it was a long three weeks without a working dishwasher. So yeah, but we did it lady. We did it. <laughs> we, did it. we did it. I think I'm looking at my notes. I think we got, Oh, we didn't talk about lowering the risk factors for stroke. Oh, I right, hit me with those really quick. Okay. So there are some risk factors that are out of our control that we, <laughs> that we can't change, like our age, our family history, our race, our sex, those, depending on, you know, what those look like for you, that can be a higher risk factor. But there are some that, you know, we can control, like not smoking, eating foods that are low saturated, fat, low sodium, not a ton of added sugar, getting active multiple times a week making sure that your blood pressure is under control, maintaining a healthy weight. You know, it's all the things that we all know that we're supposed to do anyway. But, and it, I think it, a lot of it is something that we're like, oh, it's not that big of a deal until you're calling 911 because your half of your body is numb and not working. Mm -hmm. So um, it's something that after watching my multiple family members go through, having a stroke is something that I try to be more conscious of and urge everyone to do the same. And, you know, if you do, I, I know I said this at the beginning, but if you do notice any kinds of abnormality with your, remember, be fast, your balance, your eyes, your face, your arm, your speech, then it's time to call. And I always tell people that would come into the hospital and they would be having stroke-like symptoms, but maybe it would turn out that they hadn't had a stroke. They always feel like, oh man, I overreacted. I'm embarrassed. And I always tell them it's so much better to come in and get checked out and find out that it's something that's not a stroke, praise God, than it is to be someone who says, 
well, I'll just, I'll sleep on it and I'll see what it's like tomorrow because tomorrow comes. And at that point, you know, we can do therapy and we can still make a difference for you, but you will see such vast differences in outcomes whenever you have people who get timely treatment and, you know, get to the hospital quickly. And, and will the tomorrow come is my next thought. We don't know. Mm-hmm. You don't know how bad that blockage or that bleed could be. Yep. Yep. And remember that your brain controls your breathing and your heart and everything that is so vital to keeping you alive. And if that part, God forbid, were to be blocked, that could be really bad. Mm-hmm. So always, 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 always get checked out. And don't go to like your regular doctor if you're having stroke symptoms go to an ER Yep, and don't wait. And I will just say this to the women that are listening. We neglect the most. We take Mm -hmm. one around us regularly. We put everyone before us regularly. If you don't feel right, don't question it. Don't fret over, oh, but I've got to do this or, oh, but I got to remember to pick this up at the store or, oh, go. Mm-hmm. You only get one time to go around our son. Well, technically mm-hmm. around our son like once a year, but like, you know what I mean, but <laughs> take care of you. Take care. Of you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something that, you know, I've had the patients that have said, well, it started two days ago, but, you know, I was busy and I had work or whatever. Life is going to always be busy. Um, but they always <laughs> yes. have this <laughs> this sense of remorse and regret that they ignored it and put it off and didn't get help faster because they knew something was going on. and. You know, we don't have like built-in breaks into our schedule. Like, oh, go to the hospital and get checked out to see if I'm having a stroke. It's something that is not convenient, but it's it can be like life-saving. Mm-hmm. All right. Oh, it's a heavy topic. We had to do it. Hopefully, you're better for it. I know I am. I didn't be fast, so thank you for telling me about the beat balance. And I forgot the E. Oh my God, I'm a terrible student. B is balance. E. I. Eyes. Oh yeah, eyelid. Yep. Okay. Blurred. If you if your vision is um, actually my nephew's wife was 20 years old and called me to say that she was being transported to my hospital because they thought she had had a stroke and I laughed whenever she told me this. <laughs> I was like, you haven't had a stroke. There's no way you're 20, you're healthy. You don't have any risk factors. And it was her vision that had gone. She basically got tunnel vision and then it resolved very quickly. But luckily she got checked out because we found out that she had a hole in part of her heart that had caused it. But so yes, vision may be your only symptom. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that it's not a stroke if you're only having, you know, one or two 
So yes, don't forget the eyes. <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. Be, yes. Be fast. Awesome. All right, lady. Be fast. Folks, if you want to volunteer, if you know somebody in need of supplies, equipment, reach out to, to Dysphagia Outreach Project. You can find them and their phenomenal Instagram account on Dysphagia Outreach Project on Facebook, on Instagram. We appreciate y'all for joining us on this 10-part mini-series and hope it put a smile on your heart as well as filled your cup. Sarah, I simply am in awe of you and everything you do. So thank you so much, sweet friend, for being amazing. Well, I feel the exact same way. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Sarah. (laughs) Thank you. Hey friends, thank you so much for listening to Understanding Dysphagia. Remember that if you'd like to earn credit for this episode, complete the accompanying audio course registered for ASHA CEUs on speechtherapypd.com. And if you are interested in joining speechtherapypd.com, I have some exciting news. This month, in honor of Dysphagia Awareness Month, June 1st to June 30th, 2021, For every registration with SpeechTherapyPD.com that uses the coupon code capital D, capital O, capital P for Dysphagia Outreach Project, $10 will come off every single subscription, every price, whether you want the little package or the big package, and that $10 will in turn be donated to Dysphagia Outreach Project. So if you want this episode that grew your evidence-based practice, to pay it forward a little bit more, join speechtherapypd.com and don't forget to use the coupon code DOP for Dysphagia Outreach Project. Happy learning, y'all. Bye.